Right now we're in Nehemiah chapter 6, if you want to open your Bible there or navigate on your device. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. Nehemiah 6, 1 through 14. The topic, Nehemiah's enemies ask him to go to the plains of Ono, where they intend to do him harm. The title of our message, No Go Ono. That's the Hebrew. Father, bless our time together in your word. I just, I, I love that sense, Lord, that, that you speak to us between the soul and the spirit. I don't really understand what that means, except that it's deep and, and somewhere that only you can talk. And, and we want to attend to that voice, Lord, because all other voices uh, tend to uh, be uh, slightly wrong, and yours is always 100% true. Use this text, but tell us anything that we need to hear this morning, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. amen. If I asked you, I'm pretty sure you could name several walls that have been prominent in human history. Great Wall of China, Hadrian's Wall in England, Berlin Wall, the Walls of Troy, the Walls of Babylon. Here in the U.S., we have the Market Theater Gum Wall in Seattle. This is from, how many of you have been to the Gum Wall in Seattle? I haven't either, so that's no big deal. Do you, how many of you heard of the gum wall in Seattle? Okay. The wall is by the box office for the Market Theater. The tradition began around 1993 when patrons of Unexpected Production Seattle stuck gum to the wall and placed coins in the gum blobs. Theater workers scraped the gum away twice but eventually gave up after officials deemed the gum wall a tourist attraction around 1999. Some people create small works of art out of gum. I haven't been there, but I have visited the gum wall where? In San Luis Obispo. In fact, my gum is there. The one in Seattle was named one of the top germiest tourist attractions in 2009. What do you say is the germiest tourist attraction in the world? I'll give you a hint. You kiss it. It's the Blarney Stone. Now, some people are holding out for Disneyland. I will admit that that's a germ infestation. And uh, one lady, or uh, one gal, first service, if I call her a lady, I'm going to get in trouble because she's not that old. But uh, one gal, first service, said it might be the statue of Mary that uh, gives prophecies because people kiss her feet all the time. But I don't know how they decide how germy it is, but uh, I guess everything's pretty germy when you really stop and think about it. Maybe we should all have those Purell hanging from our thing. Every time I shake your hand, I'm gonna you know, do one of those things. Hugs, I need a shower. Getting back to the more significant walls, the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall in Israel. That's a must include on any list of walls. In 2017, 3.6 million visitors were counted at that site. In our verses, Nehemiah was almost finished rebuilding the ruined wall surrounding Jerusalem. Here's what he said. There were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates. A wall without doors in the gates leaves a city vulnerable to attack. The Jewish historian Josephus recorded that many Israelites were killed by their enemies during construction. In order to draw current application from these historical counts in the Old Testament, it's good to reduce the story to its simplest representation. Nehemiah was the man of God in the city of God on the earth, and he was vulnerable to attack from his enemies while the building proceeded. 
We are the people of God in the church of God on the earth, and we are vulnerable to attack from our enemies as building proceeds. One thing Nehemiah and those of us in Christ have definitely in common is that we can be described as waiting for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. That city isn't Jerusalem. It is New Jerusalem, described in the Revelation as coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned rather for her husband. Nehemiah's physical situation in chapter 6, representative of the spiritual situation all believers find themselves in on our pilgrimage to New Jerusalem. We are not yet in our walled and gated golden city, and that leaves us vulnerable. Seeing how Nehemiah handled the particular attacks against him, that's going to help us meet our enemy at the gates in the strength of the Lord. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, your defense is to live your life in the Lord's strength. And number two, your defense is to lose your life in the Lord's service. Let's take a look at living in the Lord's strength in verses one through nine. Now, I know what you might be thinking. Didn't Jesus say that the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church on the earth? Well, he did, and they won't, they can't. But on the heels of making that very promise, just a few verses down, Jesus talked about discipleship. And here's what he said. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The gates of Hades cannot prevail is promised in a context of us living for the Lord and losing our lives for him. It is in a context of sacrifice and suffering as Christians. Keep that in mind as we learn from Nehemiah. And so verse one, now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates. Let's stop there for a minute. Why did these guys hate Nehemiah? Well, simply put, they were unredeemed fleshly men. Whether it was bigotry or prejudice or envy or jealousy or covetousness or any other expression of unredeemed humanity, they were dominated by their flesh. When you are struggling with people who are against you, you need to realize it is their nature and there's little that they can do about it. If you got saved later in life, you can understand this, I think, uh, easily. Think of what you were like before you were a Christian, the way you would react, the people you hated or were prejudiced against or bigoted towards or coveted or whatever it might be for no reason other than that was your fleshly personality. And now the new creature you are, fighting against those things, putting them down, living life in the spirit, and then apply that to the non-believers that you know. They, they are dominated by the flesh. It's a wonder more people aren't against us. Not that people are against us. I think we still live in a time where we think, wow, why are all these people against Christians? I think, why aren't all these people against us? Why haven't they teamed up to try to destroy us like they have so often through history and, and it happening now even today? And so don't think it's strange that there are people who oppose you or that it, just make sure it doesn't have anything to do with you, that there's no real reason for it, and then see it as a, uh, a representation of their fallen nature. And what is the solution to that? Salvation. And so what should we be doing? We should be praying for them and sharing Christ with them. 
because that is the only thing that is going to change the situation, but more importantly, save them. And so bear that in mind. Nehemiah was constantly working on the wall. When he wasn't working on it, he was thinking about it. Jesus is constantly working on you. It behooves you to cooperate with him, build with him as he changes you from glory to glory into his image. Verse 2, then Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let's meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. Don Corleone told his son Michael, so Barzini will move against you first. He'll set up a meeting with someone you absolutely trust, guaranteeing your safety. And at that meeting, <laughs> and at that meeting, you'll be assassinated. That's what Sanballat and Geshem had in mind for Nehemiah. They were going to assassinate him. Verse 3. <laughs> he sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing, no, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? Now, I find it interesting that Nehemiah pointed to the work. Why didn't he say, guys, I know you're plotting to do me harm. So thanks, but no thanks. It could have been diplomacy. But if you're dealing with people who want to kill you, I think you're a little bit less diplomatic. I think there's something else to be gleaned from his response. It really was the work that took priority. He wouldn't have gone down anyway, knowing they were going to kill him. But it was because he was doing this great work. I think Nehemiah would have answered a friend who meant him good this same way. If one of his pals had sent him a, a notice and said, hey, you've been working really hard without a break. There's some uh, day spas in Ono. And why don't you come and get a massage and have your nails done and you know all that kind of stuff. I think Nehemiah would have said the same thing. I'm doing a great work and I can't come and meet with you. It's easy to get distracted from growing in the Lord. And I'm not talking about sinful things, although that's a constant threat. That will certainly distract you in your walk. I'm talking about good things, fun things, things that begin to take too much of your time and attention, things that are permissible for you, but they may not be spiritually beneficial to you. Can't give you a list, sorry. Actually, you shouldn't be sorry. You should be happy. But the Holy Spirit can give you a list in your own life. I'm not the Holy Spirit in your life, but I want him in my life, and you should want him in your life to say, hey, Gene, you're getting a little bit off balance in this area. I mean, you know, it's a grace thing, but Gene, you haven't done your devotions in, a, in about a week because you're busy doing this other thing that has taken my place. And I think those corrections, course corrections, are necessary from time to time. And so check your life and see if you've been distracted from the things of the Lord. Verse 4, they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. There was nothing more to say. You know, people try to wear you down when it comes to Jesus and the gospel. You have the answer, and there's nothing more to say, but they want something else. And if we're not careful, they keep coming with their same marriage problem or work problem or financial problem. And if you're not careful, you think, okay, well, I've told them all I know about the Lord, so now let me see if I can find another solution, something else that will help. And you play into the idea that they don't need supernatural help. They only need to do things differently, and they lose the sense of how important Jesus is. See what you think of this discussion. It's titled, How Do I Counsel Unbelievers? It's from a website we would recommend on Christian counseling. Uh, and here's how it starts, and here's how it goes. 
You cannot counsel unbelievers. Don't even try. When you work with believers, your resources are vast. Spirit and the word operate to bring change. Unbelievers have neither power at work in them. Moreover, the Christian counselee possesses a regenerate nature capable of understanding and appropriating biblical truth. Again, that is something the unbeliever does not have. Then what should you do to help unbelievers? The Bible tells you to evangelize them. And in this system of counseling, they call it pre-counseling. And so if people need counseling and they're not believers, they don't know it, but all you can do is pre-counsel them, which means share the gospel with them. And then when they're saved, you can tell them how to have a successful marriage because they're gonna need the Holy Spirit and they're gonna need a redeemed nature to do it, right? And so that's the deal. And this is really hard. It's really hard to just keep coming back to Jesus day after day, year after year to people who want help and you think you're not helping them, but hey, that is, he is the answer. And so bear that in mind. Verse five, then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand and in it was written, it is reported among the nations and Geshem says, so I guess it must be true, uh, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters are gonna be reported to the king. We're gonna tattle on you. So come therefore and let us consult together. None of those things were true, but you could see how they might be true as you drop these kinds of nuggets down. And you know what do we really know about Nehemiah? And maybe behind the scenes there is something going on. It was a Friday night in October of 1995. A letter to the editor was published in our beloved Hanford Sentinel. Here are a few excerpts from it. Spiritual abuse is when a person submits himself spiritually to the authority of a pastor and the pastor takes advantage. Many times the leader is subtle or so charismatically charming that it takes a while to figure out he has fallen out of alignment with God's character. A Hanford church was convenient for me, so I attended there. After a time, I began to see the pastor as a one-man show full of arrogance, with boastful pseudo-intellectualism, even though he taught correct doctrine. I noticed people who approached him after the service were shown little love or compassion. There's much more to being a pastor than just good teaching. That church is cold because the ice is on the top and it's working its way down. In case you haven't realized it yet, that letter was about me. And I have to say, it's true. I am charismatically charming. You know, they say there's a ground, a, 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 some truth in every lie. And, I, and if it's pseudo-intellectualism, I'll, I'll take any intellectualism I can get. You know? So, <laughs> so I, I see it as a positive now. Uh, the open letter in the newspaper, though, was part of a longer campaign, followed a private letter that had been mailed to everyone in our church describing the characteristics of spiritual abuse. And that private letter was typed on forged Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa stationery purporting to be from Pastor Chuck Smith, asking everyone to write him with their complaints. To quote Archie and Edith Bunker, those were the days. Anyway, life in the ministry. Obla di, obla di. Verse eight, then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. I sent to him. Nehemiah answered privately. He didn't answer in kind, publicly fighting for public opinion. He didn't write his own letter to the editor. Now, bear in mind, this was God's strategy for Nehemiah in that particular circumstance. 
When reading the Bible, we like to come to definite conclusions on what to do in every possible situation. But since every situation is slightly different, we should be looking more at our heart than at the happening. I I, I don't need to know what to do when a letter is published in the paper. I need to remain focused on the Lord and act with the strength of meekness, whether I decide to not answer it or whether I decide to answer it. You understand what I mean? And so I'm not saying you can never say anything or you never should say anything, uh, but I am saying your heart needs to be right. You need to check your heart. And I would go so far as to say normally we say too much. There's a lot of times I think when you're attacked personally that it would really be better if you just let it go, especially when it's not true. Who cares? You know, you care, but then you get drawn in to something. uh, And and here's, here's another, here's just a, piece of personal advice. Don't write anything you're going to regret later on. Uh, You know, and just, I think of Facebook and Instagram as a fun place. I want to show you what I ate for lunch, you know, and here's my latest coffee and stuff. Uh, You get on there sometimes with all of this stuff and it's like, you do whatever you want. I don't care. Uh, But you're going to, sooner or later, you're going to regret some of the things that you wrote on, on these sites, especially when you go for your next job interview and your children, your kids, if they have access to these things, oh, wow, are they in trouble by the time they get job interviews? Because, you know, employers are looking at this, especially everybody's stuff is public. And uh, so just be careful. So um, you, you don't always need to defend yourself. Let God defend you. There are times when you need to say something, sure, but be discerning about that. Don't always worry. Verse 9. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now, therefore, Lord, or O God, rather, strengthen my hands. Fear is obviously a weapon formed against you. We know that no weapon formed against you will prosper. But there is fear of the unknown and fear of failure and fear of what people think and fear of rejection, fear of your boss, fear of medical test results. All of those tend to knock you down. Let's uh, lift out of that list fear of the medical test results. I mean, that's kind of a, you know, something's wrong and then they test you for it and you have to wait for the results. And unfortunately, now there's the internet. So you find out that you have a rare form of scarlet fever that hasn't existed since the dawn of time and you're sure you're going to die. You know, that kind of a thing. So if you are waiting for a medical diagnosis, stay off the internet until you find out what it is. But this is a real thing. I mean, people, you know, you go to the doctor and all of a sudden, hey, there's something wrong with me and it turns out to be serious sometimes. So it might be normal, but it might be abnormal. Uh, Which it is, is gonna define a path that you are on, maybe for the rest of your life. Those of you who've had severe diagnoses, you know what I'm talking about. It seems like one day everything is great and fine and you're walking with the Lord and you're serving the Lord and 10 minutes later, you're saddled with some kind of disease or condition that if you don't get healed from it, it's gonna dog you for the rest of your life. But you know what? You're still on a path walking with Jesus. It's a different path. It's not a path you would have chosen. It's a path that you'll wonder for the rest of your life why the Lord allowed you to walk it But you're walking it with him and you'll find that his grace is sufficient for you. And we don't think about it very often, but that path that is easy, it's not just that you don't grow and become strong, it's that it's easy to get off of. The easy path is easy to get off of because you don't really have your eyes on the Lord anymore. You don't really, you wouldn't say this out loud, but you don't need the Lord on the easy path. 
because everything is, is working for you. But either way, you're on a path with the Lord and it shouldn't really matter because your destination is heaven. So whether abounding or being abased, the Lord is your strength. Verses 10 through 14, your defense is to lose your life in the Lord's service. Losing your life for the Lord as his disciple, we think mostly of daily sacrifices at home or at work or in school. But for multitudes of believers, it means something a lot more. In January of 2018, Newsweek claimed, and I quote, Christian persecution and genocide is worse right now than any time in human history. The report they cited said, and I quote, Saudi Arabia was the only country where the situation for Christians did not get worse. And that was only because the situation couldn't get any worse. A little bit of literary you know, play with you there, but it, it's true. It's terrible. I, I would have never guessed that. If you would have told, asked me what was the greatest time of the persecution of the church, I, I would have gone right to the Inquisition or something like that. And, and they say, no, it, it's right now around the world. In September 2017, Foreign Policy Magazine published an article titled, We Are Witnessing the Elimination of Christian Communities in Iraq and Syria. There are countries where entire Christian populations are being eradicated. China is on a rampage again against Christianity and the Bible. And so uh, there's a lot of suffering in this world. If you are ever called upon to be martyred, you can trust the Lord for his sufficient grace to strengthen you. The point is that the gates of Hades cannot prevail against you, especially in death. Jesus has conquered death. You die victoriously. So verse 10, afterward I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, Let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. We'll close the doors of the temple. They're coming to kill you. Indeed, at night, they will come to kill you. It helps to remember that no one but the priest was allowed into the Holy of Holies, which is what he's talking about. It would be an egregious sin for Nehemiah to flee there. I've been wanting to use the word egregious for some time now. It would, at the very least, disqualify him for leadership. Egregious is part of my pseudo-intellectualism. I don't want to obfuscate anything either so anyway I remember at Gene's college graduation the speaker used the word obfuscate and I thought you can say that in public I I never heard that before I think it has to do with making things complex and non-understandable which whenever you word the obfuscate it, it does that so And I said, should such a man as I flee, who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Now, certainly Nehemiah wasn't boasting about being a great man. He wasn't saying, I'm too great to to go in. What he seems to be getting at is that God would not give such counsel to his servant. God rebukes, he exhorts, he corrects, but his words are seasoned with grace. There are things he would not say and ways he would not say them. Do you know it's common in some Pentecostal circles for believers to claim they have personal prophecies for you from God? I've had a few personal prophecy projectiles pronounced on me. They are always harsh and judgmental and they don't come true. Uh, I remember there was a period in, to- in my life where several people were prophesying uh, about me. <laughs> and uh, I remember one poor guy came in and he said, I have a personal word of prophecy for you. And I go, let me guess. It's about me being a false shepherd and leading people astray. And he goes, how did you know? Just a wild guess, you know? So anyway, uh, 
crazy stuff. Uh, and Nehemiah, you know, he's not claiming to be great, obviously. Some people do. There's a, we're having a discussion this week. There's a, is it a website or an Instagram? Instagram? Uh, Preacher Sneakers, it's called. And uh, it's a guy who looks at famous and, and uh, well-known preachers, and he tells you how much their outfit cost. Because some of these guys, some guys, you know, if you're really into sneakers, I, I don't know what I think about it, tell you the truth, but some guys, you, know, you can get $1,000 sneakers or shoes and stuff, you know. I'll tell you, I have a, and not that I, I mean, I have some expensive shirts, but this happens to be a $25 shirt, $17 pants from Ross. My belt was probably eight bucks. And my shoes, now my Sanooks are $50 and stuff. And then, so I don't know what that adds up to, but that's my uh, Sunday wardrobe. <laughs> But some of these guys are into the thousands and, and hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars, you know, and, and of course they spend other money. And so one of the guys was being interviewed and during the interview, he took uh, exception to this and during the interview, he said, I am a great man. And I thought, oh, oh man. And everybody applauded instead of throwing stones or something like that, you know? So if I ever get up here and say to you, guys, I am a great man. If you don't leave, then I'll be sad because you haven't listened to me for 34 years. <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever see some of this stuff on television or, or, or you know, and somebody gets up and says something that's totally ridiculous and non-scriptural and everybody sits there or worse, they applaud. Where are the people who have the courage to just get up? I mean, you don't have to yell and scream and throw your chair. Just leave. If, if something is untrue, I mean, you don't, you don't need to deal with that. So anyway, um, if somebody here wants to keep track of my wardrobe, that'd be fine. Verse 12, then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason, he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way in sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. It isn't always a word of prophecy that people use to undermine you, but it can be. And so be aware of that. Sometimes it's Bible doctrine, by which I mean there's certain systematic theologies that claim they are the only way to interpret the Bible. And instead of evangelizing the lost, these guys go after believers, trying to convert them to their system of theology rather than to bring converts to Christ. And so just beware of, I don't want to get too on a, on a sidetrack with this, but just beware of people in the church who are coming to you and saying, hey, you know, this is what you really need to believe about this doctrine because this is what the early church believed. This is, you know, what the Bible says and all that. Uh, we'd be happy to talk doctrine with people. You know, we understand that not everybody agrees, but these are times when people are telling you you're actually wrong and you might not really be saved unless you believe the way they believe. And so there's a lot of ways that people try to trip us up. Verse 14, my God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to their works and the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Terrible, now you can't use that name. I uh, hope none of you have named your daughters Noadiah without knowing. Shemaiah wasn't the only hireling, but no matter how many people say something that is false, it doesn't make it true. Nehemiah wouldn't flee to save himself, not to the Holy of Holies, and not anywhere. He was quite willing to perish if that should be the Lord's will. I mean, after all, he was told, they're coming to kill you. Hide in the temple. Those are two different things. He did nothing to hide or protect himself other than what he was already doing. The Apostle Paul said, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If that's your honest attitude, to live is Christ and to die is gain, uh, then you'll have no problem losing your life daily while serving the Lord at home and at work and in school. So if you want a life verse or a secret to the Christian life or whatever you want to call it, uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's essentially my outline today with different language, living for, for the Lord in his strength, losing your life in his uh, service. Uh, it's, it's what Paul said. It's what motivated him. We mentioned the Western Wall in Jerusalem. You might recall that Jesus famously predicted of the temple, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So how is it then that the Western Wall is still standing? Well, the Western Wall is a retaining wall built by Herod the Great to increase the size of the temple complex. When the disciples pointed to uh, the buildings, that's what they were talking about, the buildings of the temple, and that word is used specifically, not the foundations. And so the prophecy of Jesus, it was fulfilled to the letter. Every stone of the temple buildings was torn down, just as he said it would be in and around 70 AD. Now, the greatest wall and its gates, it's coming. It's our home, New Jerusalem. So let me read this to you. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcinity, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. That's the city that has not just walls but gates. That's the place where you will be safe for eternity. And if you're a believer in Christ, you have an address there already and a new name on that mailbox as well. Uh, by which Jesus will talk to you. If you're not a believer, and I have to believe that there are a few people in this audience that don't know Christ in a saving way, if you've never been born again, we believe that the Holy Spirit is here to free your heart, to free your will to believe in Jesus. That's his work, is to come into the world and to convict of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. He convicts of sin, that means he shows you that you can't get to heaven on your own because you've committed sins and you're not a perfect person. Righteousness means you need a perfect righteousness in order to get into heaven. 
And the only person that ever had that was Jesus Christ. And if you don't have that, there's a judgment coming, a terrible eternal judgment where you will be conscious forever in a Christless hell. Uh, but the good news is Jesus died, rose from the dead, and he gives you his righteousness if you receive him as your savior. And so if you're here this morning, if you've never really been born again, never done that, then uh, we would invite you to ask the Lord to come into your heart and to save you. Let's pray together.